So this morning we're in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. Dustin Curzon is going to come and uh, read for us. You'll notice, and uh, Cece is joining the party. So um, you'll notice in the text that Dustin reads, he's going to read all of Acts chapter 6, and then he's going to read the tail end of chapter 7. So he's going to leave out a big chunk where, um, where Stephen is, is preaching to the Sanhedrin. And we're going to address that in the text, but he's going to read that. As, uh, as Dustin and uh, Cece read, would you please stand in reverence for Scripture, and we'll hop in. I brought the good kid because the other one's crying in the back. So. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all of the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parnamis, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit, the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he heard, said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. Let's pray. Lord, um, God, that we would be like Stephen. Um, God, I confess that I don't know that I could um, to speak eloquently, to um, sacrifice everything for the, the good news of the gospel, but Lord, that you would work in us that that might be our heart. Lord, that we would um, see that as, as pure joy, Lord. 
Lord, be with John today uh, as we go through your word, as he speaks, and that the Spirit would be uh, on him, and that our hearts would be open, um, and that you would uh, continue to work in us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I feel like I have relatively few marketable skills. I don't know a trade. I don't know how to like do woodworking or anything with my hands. I'm, I'm envious of my friends who are really good at design and architecture, who can like go into a space that like maybe a house that looks like a dump and and just see what it could be, see colors, see you know if we took out this wall and imagine what it could be, you know know what to do with furniture. It's kind of Amazing, the people who get that, like what we do in, with furniture, with colors, with the space, shapes the culture, shapes the behaviors of the human beings that live within it. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, in March or April, I went to Washington, D.C. I've been before, but I had an afternoon on my hands where I just roamed around, I prayed a little bit, but I mostly just walked around in shoes that were not comfortable for the amount of miles I did. And, uh, and it's so impressive to be on Capitol Hill it's awe-inspiring to look up, to, to see the monuments, statues, the National Archives, all the museums, the Treasury, the EPA, the White House. I went over to the White House when, when the French president was there, and the quotations in marble on the, on the ground. And you walk around and you're inspired by the beauty and the awe of this place that was planned meticulously, and, and, and it draws your eyes upward, and it sends a strong message about uh, our country, and, and that's what it's supposed to. It's supposed to inspire fear and awe and all of this, and it certainly did as I was walking around. It's impressive. Uh, I think about another time I went to uh, these people's house. We we're going to have what I thought was a pretty important conversation. They're not here, so you're not about to get silently sickled out. I thought we were going to have an important conversation, and so I walked into their living room. The living room, as you know, many of ours are, is like situated around the television, which is okay. But I sat down, I was facing them. They were facing the television, and the television was on, muted. So it was like, I know I've got like a quarter of their attention, so I'm going to throw out however I thought this conversation was going to go. But I even think about the architecture and the design of this space, which is so cool. Um, I mean, it's beautiful. The, they've taken really nice care of the wood as you come in through the stained glass doors. I mean, this is not like your typical living room. This is a very different space for a different purpose. You walk in, you see uh, these, these sloping ceilings that go up right front and center. We have this communion table. Uh, above it, the, the empty cross. Above that, the, the stained glass, the, the beauty and the majesty of that are attracting our eyes upward to consider the beauty and the majesty of God. The gospel is front and center. And then over on this side, we have this almost comically oversized pulpit for this space. It is really, really big. Um, but if you think about it, this was a Lutheran congregation. Martin Luther, if you know his story, wanted to establish in the church the primacy and the priority of Scripture. And so in the design of this room, the church wanted to carry on that message that the gospel, the, the, the celebration of Christ's death and resurrection would be front and center, that our eyes would be drawn up to God, and that Scripture would be given priority and primacy in the church. And so as a new church, you know, we could have met in a black box kind of space and turned all the lights off in the, in the congregation and turned all the lights up on the stage, but instead we've kind of gone the opposite direction. 
and lean, we've leaned into the traditional elements of the space and thought, man, we want the gospel to be front and center. We want Scripture to receive the priority and be at a place of honor. And so even before I preach, every time before I preach or Todd preaches or anyone who preaches at Cornerstone, we all stand in honor of Scripture. And a member of the congregation, because the Scriptures were given as a gift to the church, a member of the congregation reads the Scripture, and it's God setting the agenda for our conversation. God getting the first word in. And there will be times where we preach thematically or preach topically we'll, uh, in September, or maybe it's October. October, uh, We're going to preach on power, which I'm, I'm very excited about, talking about power. But most of the time, we're preaching what we call exegetically, where we just take the Scriptures, and we trust that the Spirit is at work in the reading of the Scriptures, and we let God set the agenda. And so we study a book at a time or a chapter at a time, trusting that God's doing the work that God wants to do in the reading and the study of Scripture. And so we're trying to, to lean into the, this space and the architecture by prioritizing Scripture. It's certainly something that the early church did. There was the primacy and the centrality of Scripture in the ministry of the early church. You may remember weeks ago when we talked about Acts chapter 2. After the descent of the Holy Spirit and the church was together, they were meeting regularly, praying in homes, studying the Scriptures as they dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread. They, they made it the center of their work together. It was, it was an unmistakable priority of the church, studying uh, the Scriptures. It was such a priority that as the church grew and became more complex, it became necessary uh, to, to establish norms for the, the way that the, the preachers spent their time. They said it wouldn't be right for us to wait on tables. We need to give ourselves to prayer and to, and to preaching the Word. And so uh, in clarifying the gifts of those who are called to study and to preach God's Word, it, it created clarity for other people. The people who are called, there's a diversity of gifts that God gave the church, and no one is more important than the other. And there was a need for people who had wisdom and mercy and the gift of administration. I'm so grateful for people with the gift of administration because I don't have that gift. And they needed to confront a challenge that was going on in the early church, and it had to do with distribution of food. And this is a total side note, but I think it's worth noting that when we think about the early church, perhaps you think about it in terms of this organic house church kind of thing. And it was really simplistic, and, and there was no hierarchy, and there was no structure, and it was everybody kind of doing their own thing. And there's, I get some of that. I understand some of that. But as the church grew and scaled... Uh, there was, there was, they introduced systems. They introduced a diversity of gifts and roles. And we see this here in this chapter, that some were called to one ministry and others were called to another. And so uh, system and organization and order is, is not something that God's afraid of or God's opposed to. I just think that's an interesting little sidebar. So they had this problem of, of distribu distributing the food to the widows who are in the congregation. And so they decided, let's get together seven people with these gifts who can lead this ministry effectively. And so there were seven that they named. One of those was Stephen, who's the primary actor and the, the primary character in this, this particular story. The problem was uh, there were two sets of widows within the church, the Hebraic widows who were Jewish and uh, like uh, Jewish and nationality lived in the country, and then there were Hellenistic or Greek Jews. Maybe they were converts. Maybe they had a different ethnic background. But this latter group was being overlooked in the distribution of food. It was causing uh, problems within the church, and so they elected Stephen and these six others. Good job, Dustin, on taking a swing at those names. I, I didn't want to do it myself, uh, and they hammered it out. They figured out the problem, they established order, they got some systems in place, 
and the Word of God spread. And then if you have your Bible open in chapter 6, we come across these two words in verse 9 that are pretty important. And you may even want to underline them in your Bible. Opposition arose. Opposition arose. The church faced opposition almost constantly. But in particular, they faced opposition from the outside when they threatened people's power, actively or passively. We'd already talked about opposition that they'd gotten from people who had power tied to architecture. People who ran the temple were very threatened by the ministry of the apostles in the early church. They said, it feels like the whole world is going after them, and they see this, this structure, this institution under threat, and they were right to feel threatened because within a generation, the temple was gone, never to be rebuilt. They were feeling threatened because of their power tied to architecture. There's also another group of people whose power was tied to influence, and it's related to this latter group of Hellenistic Jewish widows. These Hellenistic Jewish widows had left the synagogue and had become part of the church. And this synagogue of the freedmen, they said these are the ones who opposed Stephen, came out and made up all of these allegations about him and called him to account publicly, and he was put in a threatening situation. Uh, and that's where it came from, power tied to influence. It's worth talking about opposition because opposition is a fundamental reality of life. Opposition and resistance are a fundamental reality of life, and anything worth doing, whether it's internal or external, you're going to meet resistance. Uh, there's a, a book that was written a handful of years ago, The Legend of Bagger Vance. Maybe you read or you probably saw the movie with Will Smith. It was written by this guy named Stephen Pressfield, who wrote a book called The War of Art, which is just a book about the creative process, which is fascinating. And in the book, Pressfield personifies opposition, whether it's internal or external, as the resistance. And the resistance is everything that keeps you from doing your work, everything that keeps you from doing the stuff that's the most important. I'll read you just a bit uh, from Pressfield on the resistance. He said, the following is a list in no particular order of those activities that most commonly elicit resistance, with a capital R. The pursuit of any calling in writing, painting, music, film, dance, or any creative art, however marginal or unconventional. The launching of any entrepreneurial venture or enterprise for profit or otherwise. Any diet or health regimen. Any program of spiritual advancement. Any activity whose aim is tighter abdominals. A good one. Any course or program designed to overcome an unwholesome habit or addiction, education of every kind, any act of political, moral, or ethical courage, including the decision to change for the better some unworthy pattern of thought or conduct in ourselves, the undertaking of any enterprise or endeavor whose aim is to help others, any act that entails commitment of the heart, the decision to get married, to have a child, to weather a rocky patch in a relationship or the taking of any principled stand in the face of adversity. In other words, any act that rejects immediate gratification in favor of long-term growth, health, or integrity. Come on. And then he says, resistance will tell you anything to keep you from doing your work. It will perjure, fabricate, falsify, seduce, bully, cajole, Resistance is flexible. It will assume any form if that's what it takes to deceive you. It will reason with you like a lawyer or jam a 9 millimeter in your face like a stick-up man. 
Resistance has no conscience. It will pledge anything to get a deal, then double-cross you as soon as your back is turned. If you take resistance at its word, you deserve everything you get because resistance is always lying and resistance is always full of garbage. Anything meaningful we want to do in life, of any, of any difficulty, we're going to meet resistance because resistance is a fundamental reality of life. And so Stephen, in the early church, in the face of resistance, how do they, how do they confront it? How do they deal with it? As I want to demonstrate, Stephen had what I'm calling a Scripture-soaked imagination. Stephen had a Scripture-soaked imagination that was fostered in community, that was empowered by the Spirit, that was nourished on the Scriptures, and that was acquired through training over time. He had a Scripture-soaked imagination. He'd acquired by, by time and hard work and all of these things a lens through which he interpreted the world, helped him understand himself and understand the opposition, understand where, the, where they were in the timeline that helped him make sense of, oh, this is what's going on, of course. He had a Scripture-soaked imagination. It wasn't something that he had developed on his own, like, like learning a hobby. It was fostered in community. We see the early church dedicated themselves. When, when's the last time you dedicated yourself to something? Maybe it was, uh, it was studying to pass a test, or it was an athletic kind of thing, or maybe it was saving money to reach a goal. Dedicated themselves to teaching and to the study of Scripture. This was fostered in community for Stephen. It is empowered by the Spirit. This, this Scripture-soaked imagination was not something that he could come up with on his own. This was utterly reliant on the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, utterly dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit to replace the lens through which he interpreted life. He was nourished on the Scriptures. He wasn't left to make up stuff on his own. Uh, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, and actually who showed up in this text under a different name as Saul, who had a major life change that's coming in the following chapters, wrote a letter to a young pastor named Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.16. He said, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God can be equipped for every good work, every good endeavor. He's feasted on the Scriptures, and it was acquired by training over time. Something that is really noteworthy to me about Stephen is that the text explicitly sets up that Stephen was not supposed to be the Scripture expert. Stephen was not, a, was not known for being a preacher. Stephen was not among those who needed to dedicate their time to the study of Scripture so they could teach and preach. Stephen was just on the, the care team, the benevolence team. Stephen was a member of the church and a product of the behavior of the early church. And the, the behavior of the early church produced this kind of person who had a Scripture-soaked imagination. There's a word that's really important to me in thinking about how we think about the Scriptures and thinking about how we think about God. And the word is reflection. Reflection. Reflection is asking the difficult questions. Reflection is asking questions of our assumptions, questions about the lens through which we interpret a sermon or a Scripture or a song. Reflection is about going to bat with God and asking about the apparent contradictions in the difficult passages in Scripture. Reflection is, is that process of uncovering God's truth. And there are different degrees of reflection. You can have really low-level reflection, which is asking few questions, which is thinking not really at all about the implications of believing something. 
I'm calling this, uh, this is somewhat pejorative, but kind of bumper sticker Christianity. It's low levels of reflection. And on the other end, you've got high levels of reflection where someone is, is, is diving deep into the deep waters of God's wisdom and asking questions, knowing that if God is the God of all truth, then God can handle my questions. He's not threatened by that. And that may be good news for you. You've had realistic uh, questions and objections to the Christian faith, and you didn't know that God wasn't threatened by it. He's not. God is the God of all truth. He can handle it. Low levels and high levels of reflection. St. Jerome, who helped interpret uh, some of the Bible into Latin, said this. He said, The Scriptures are shallow enough for a babe or a child to come and drink without fear of drowning and yet deep enough for a theologian to swim in without ever touching the bottom. The Scriptures are accessible, and at the same time, they're cavernous. They're rich. You'll never explore the depths of them to their fullness. I want to be a person, and I think you want to be a person. We want to be, as a community, the kind of people who dive deep into the wisdom of God the deep waters of God's wisdom, studying, examining, reflecting, practicing, questioning, obeying, failing, stepping out in faith, allowing the Spirit of God to renew and to transform us, to make us like a Psalm 1 kind of person. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Not his law, he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by streams of living water whose leaf never withers and flower never fades. Everything he does or she does prospers. We want to be people who've put down such deep roots into the soil of God's Word that our life blossoms and flourishes and provides fruit that blesses others. That's the kind of people that we want to be to develop a Scripture-soaked imagination, learning to see ourselves and each other and our world and our place in this big story through the lens of God's story. So when Stephen represented a threat to the Hellenistic Jews, and when Stephen and the church became a problem to those losing power, how did Stephen make sense of himself and his world and the opposition he faced and what was happening? If you read chapter 7, and I encourage you to read chapter 7, Uh, Stephen walks through the story of Scripture from Abraham to Moses, and you can see his wheels turning, that he's going back to the old stories of the people of God and playing out how does what happened with them and what God was doing among them inform where I am in my world right now, which is as real as our world is today. It was going on in real time. He started walking through the story, and as he thought about the story, just from Abraham to Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, he started to see some themes that informed for him what was going on. He picked up some themes that informed his understanding of their resistance, that it wasn't about them. This was a problem that had been going on for a really, really long time, that there was a long history within Israel of resisting the work and the voice of God. And this is how Stephen concludes his little sermonette to the Sanhedrin. He said, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. In other words, your religion is all on the outside. It hasn't gotten into your heart yet. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. 
Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, Jesus the Messiah. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Courageous. Through the lens of this scripture-soaked imagination, Stephen saw a bigger picture. And contrary to logic, contrary to logic, there's some people whose hearts are so hard, and the particular dangerous breed of this is those who are religious, and maybe especially people who are religious and have grown hard hearts, that they would come to actively ignore and even oppose the work and the voice and the movement of God, even to the point of killing those whom God has sent. And Stephen perceived, as many, many, many Christians have over the years and even today, that the road to glory for some of those whom God has called paved through death. And Stephen discerned the moment he was in, and there's nothing more dangerous than a man with nothing left to lose. And he knew what was coming for him. He discerned that he was going to join Christ in martyrdom. Having developed this scripture-soaked imagination that was fostered in community and empowered by the Spirit and nourished by the Scriptures and acquired by training over time, when his moment came, Stephen was ready. And he was just like Jesus. He, as the men were reeling back to unleash fury on him, echoed the words of Jesus. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue what they're doing. And as they hurled the stones upon him, it says he fell asleep. Most moving of all, Stephen experienced something that few, if any of us, will truly experience to this degree in our lives. Scripture talks about Jesus who's seated at the right hand of the Father, seated being a sign of authority and rest. He said, I see heaven. I see Jesus standing before the throne. Jesus stood in solidarity with his brother. Stephen was the first martyr. And he shared with Jesus this intimacy of martyrdom. And there's something so beautiful about... Some, Jesus sometimes leads us to these places of great loneliness and isolation. But he always promises to be with us. And he gives us a, a lonely family. A family to bear this unique burden with together. A couple of highlights or lessons from the Scripture here. The first thing is this. Opposition or resistance may be a sign that you're moving in the right direction. Opposition or resistance could be a sign you're moving in the right direction. At the same time, it could be a sign that you're a dummy and you need to turn around. Opposition could be a sign that you're moving in the right direction. And so if you're experiencing some level of opposition, whether it's in trying to develop spiritual disciplines or share your faith with someone else or be a light in your work, whatever it is, Opposition may be a sign that you're doing the right thing, so take that as your cue to press in. Second thing, we need to discern our place in God's story by developing a Scripture-soaked imagination. I, I have trouble with my eyes. Um, uh, yesterday, my, my eyes were so dry, my contacts were really irritating me, and I, I couldn't see super great. Halfway through the day, I took out my contacts and put on my glasses. Without help, I am a mess. I, could, I would not recognize any of you. I'm not safe to get behind the wheel. Oh my gosh, so many of us are unsafe to live. So many of us have no clue 
what's going on. We need to get a new set of lenses through which we can see the world rightly. There's the old song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's a good song. Look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. I get what he's saying, but I think it's the other way around. And the things of earth will grow strangely clear in the light of His glory and grace. Jesus puts the right eyes on us so that we can see. We need to develop a Scripture-soaked imagination. But third, we develop this. To develop this, it takes a community. It takes the Spirit. It takes the Scriptures, and it takes time. And the last of all, the call of all Christians is through the cross. The call of all Christians is death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids them come and die. And it's in death that we find resurrection. The call of all Christians is through the cross to a place of loneliness, where in that loneliness and that isolation, we, we experience intimacy with Christ. If you're suffering, if you're lonely, if you're facing resistance, you have a friend in Jesus. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone comes after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. There's intimacy with Jesus in the following and intimacy with Jesus in the denial and in the resistance. Yesterday, I got to go to a, a memorial service for this amazing woman uh, who was at Asbury, her name is Esther Jean Morrison. Anybody know Esther Jean? Yeah. Esther Jean was 95 years old and was a lifelong lover of Jesus, a lifelong student of Scripture. Her husband died in December, uh, December 21st or 22nd of 2005, and they built a beautiful life together, and, um, and then he was gone. And she said to herself, how old would she have been, 82, 83 at the time? She said, I'm going to give the rest of my life to following Jesus and blessing others. And so Clarence died in December of 2005. In January of 2006, she led a mission trip to Mexico, and she was the primary translator from English to Spanish, Spanish to English. In her, in her years of ministry, she literally mentored hundreds of young moms, uh, through a Mother's Fellowship at Asbury. Life is hard for all of us, but there are also some acute challenges in being a, a parent or being a, young, a parent with young kids, and she mentored literally hundreds of, of people. Esther Jean labored in prayer. Last fall, uh, we stood right over there in the little choir loft, and, uh, and she prayed for you. As we, as we were... Uh, and getting ready to launch this church. She couldn't pray for you by name because she didn't know your name yet, but she prayed for you. That through this church that's coming together, that people would know Jesus and people would find life in Jesus. And she prayed for you. She was 95 years old and she was on Facebook. Every time I posted something to Cornerstone related on Facebook, she just say, I'm praying for you. God bless you. God bless the ministry of Cornerstone. But man, what a way, what a way to live a life. She took her kids and her grandkids to Central and South America on mission trips long after she probably should have physically. And for a person who spoke publicly as often as she did, she struggled with her voice. It was often difficult to understand her because her voice was given way. And you'd ask her, Esther Jean, how you doing? She said, I'm doing fine. It's just this old house is breaking down. And last week... Um, uh, after she passed, I mean, people came out of the woodwork to tell the story of what she had done, how she'd lived. 
And normally at Asbury, you have memorial services in the chapel, which holds three or 400 people. And said so they held it in the sanctuary. And there were 600, 700, 800 people of all ages, of numerous ethnicities, people who had come into contact with a woman who had exemplified a life with a Scripture-soaked imagination, a woman who knew what it looked like to live in community, a woman who was utterly reliant on the work of the Holy Spirit, a woman who loved the Scriptures, and a woman who dedicated her whole life to, to proving God's truth. And she lived a beautiful life. That's the kind of life we want to live. What would it look like if you, your family, your friends, our church, what if we really bought in big to this whole thing? Believe that Jesus is not just a way to live, but the way, the best way, the way that leads to life and flourishing. What if we believe He's not just a truth among many truths, but He's the truth, He's the truest truth, the best truth there is. He's not just a way to live a life, but He's the way to live the life that is truly life. Most of us, most people will not go big, will not gamble everything on that kind of pursuit. But what if we did? What if we did together? What if we encouraged one another to stand firm in the face of opposition, internal and external? What if we leaned hard on the community, not just Cornerstone, but God's people, the church? What if we were utterly reliant on the work of the Spirit? What if we dedicated ourselves to studying the Scriptures? And what if we embraced this life of training for the long haul to be made well in Christ? What if we did? Songwriter said, fearless of the world's despising, we the ancient path pursue, dying with our Lord and rising to a life divinely new. Fearless of the world's despising, we the ancient path pursue. Pray that God would give us the grace to stand firm in the face of opposition, even the opposition within our own hearts, or maybe most especially the opposition in our own hearts, and give us the courage and the discernment to follow the ancient path together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I have no clue how to do in my own life and in a community the things that we've just talked about. So it must be a work of your Spirit. My prayer for myself and for us is as you give us those nudges and sometimes those shoves, that we would go in the direction that you push us. Do you give us the courage to do the next right thing? you give us the boldness to shut down the voice of opposition within us? Remember the words of Scripture, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Give us the courage to take you at your word. And thank you that as we try and we fail and we pick ourselves up again, that you're right there with us, that you're walking closely beside us, and that you love us. While we're forgetful, you remember. While we're weak, you are strong, and we lean on that holy. As we come to the table, thank you for the reminder that it's not about what we do, it's about what you have done and what you are doing by your Spirit in the church. And so as we come with empty hands, would you give us the gift of your presence? Give us the gift of assurance that you love us and you're with us, that you're at work in Christ's church, and help us to live in this way together. For the glory of God 
and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.